So when we're thinking about what we want to put forward in the, in the magazine as a topic, we try to think about what are the emerging interests? Mm. What are the things that are kind of coming together now that are going to shape the next, say, 10 years of, of scholarship? And how can we make that, that change, that vitality, uh, obvious and, uh, and interesting to a general readership. That's Caitlin Zaloom, co-founder and co-editor of Public Books, an online journal of diverse intellectual debate and one of the few forums online or in print dedicated to bringing cutting-edge scholarly thinking and criticism to a wide public audience. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In 2012, two scholars, Caitlin Zaloom, an anthropologist at New York University, and Sharon Marcus, a literary critic at Columbia, founded an online journal called Public Books. They had a couple aims. First, to open up a new forum for intellectual debate that invited deeper and more critical reflection on culture and politics than what one might see in most mainstream magazines and popular journals. And second, to provide a space for scholars of diverse backgrounds, identities, perspectives, to write for a large public audience. Considering the swift rise in popularity of the journal, as well as its consistently robust and challenging output of articles and syllabi, it certainly wouldn't be outlandish to say that Public Books has, in less than five years, carved out a large space for itself on the map of contemporary criticism and debate. Today we hear from Kate Zaloom, co-editor of Public Books, about her journal and its aims. We also hear a bit about what it took to get the journal up and running, why scholars would be eager to write for a journal like Public Books, and why the reading public would be excited to hear from scholars. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Zaloom, Kate, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. I'm glad to be here. So, Kate, you're co-editor and co-founder of Public Books with Sharon Marcus. Public Books is pretty young. Uh, you started it, I think, in, in 20. 12, uh, but, but already it's got, it's got quite a significant following. Uh, the mission you state uh, on your website is pretty simple and to the point. Quote, to create a diverse new home for intellectual debate online. Uh, my first question then is this. Why did you and Professor Marcus think in 2012 that intellectual debate needed a new home? Uh, what kinds of conversations were you hoping to start that you didn't see going on elsewhere? That's a great question. Uh, so in 2012, Sharon and I, uh, who knew each other from academic circles, um, were talking and we realized that we had many of the same concerns about our reading lives outside of our own narrow academic specialties. I'm an economic anthropologist. Sharon is a, uh, a literary critic and scholar. Uh, and uh, when we wanted to go looking for ideas that were beyond what we did in our, uh, in our regular scholarly lives, we were having more and more trouble finding the kinds of discussions that we wanted, discussions that are in-depth, um, that bring together a diversity of voices, and that really inform our own perspectives with a kind of expertise that we would never be able to access uh, ourselves. Mm. 
so we looked around, this was in 2012, and we saw a landscape where those kinds of discussions um, were actually pulling back. I mean, that, this was in internet years, of course, the four or so years in between seemed like an eon. But uh, in 2012, the major newspapers were rolling back their literature uh, reviews, closing down book review sections. And in places like the New York Times, for instance, Sharon and I felt that the coverage was mostly of a kind of evaluative perspective, you know, whether or not we should like a book and why, um, which was not really what we wanted. We wanted bigger conversations. And in what we felt like should be the um, and, and gold standard for these sorts of in-depth essays that are written by experts, the New York Review of Books, we really saw a, a, a very um, narrow range of voices being offered um, and a, uh, a set of uh, authors who, who really um, were, were on the older end, um, who were mostly white men mm. and, uh, and who represented uh, what I like to think of as the kind of loyal dissent perspective um, on politics and, what do you, and even what do you on mean academic ideas. Uh, that, that they are pe people like Paul Krugman and George Soros who have, who already occupy platforms uh, either, you know, say in the New York Times or the, the platform that George Soros has as a, you know, major um, capitalist philanthropist uh, who want to kind of fix the broken system, but who aren't necessarily giving us a, uh, a completely new perspective on, um, on, on the problems that, that they address. Um, so in other words, I, I felt and Sharon felt that there was really a place for discussing much more cutting edge ideas. So that's, that's really interesting. I have a, a number of questions about a, a lot of what you just said, I guess. So focusing just for the moment on these initial conversations you had with Sharon Marcus about this journal and about your critique of kind of the mainstream debate going on in most um, newspapers, uh, I guess my first question is, did, did you have a sense, as well as Professor Marcus, did, did, did you two have a sense that perhaps as scholars you wanted a wider audience you wanted to present you, you say cutting edge ideas but i believe your website also says cutting edge scholarly ideas did you, did you want to bring scholarship and the work that scholars in particular of diverse backgrounds were doing uh to a wider audience yes absolutely we both wanted to bring scholarly ideas that were coming um from obviously the academy um to a wider audience and we wanted to be involved in helping scholars learn how to to write for mm. a more public audience which is a which is just something that requires you know focus and practice um, so we we both wanted to create a space where scholarly ideas could go public um, and uh, and we also wanted to be involved in helping this next generation of uh, public, scholars or public intellectuals make it out there. Uh, mm -hmm. We've 
feel like there are, there just was a huge demand from the academy to be to be writing and addressing big ideas and big problems in the world, but not nearly enough outlets to make that possible. So I, I have some questions about what it would mean for a scholar to write for the general public. And actually, I'll, I'll bring those up in a minute. For now, um, I'm hoping just to dig in a bit to the content of public books. So if, if you listeners uh, get on the website, I think one of the elements that's most striking uh, about public books um, is that some of the sections of the journal aren't really the ones you'd see in a magazine. Certainly, you wouldn't see them as sections in, say, the, the New York Times. Uh, for one, they seem geared to issues or topics that scholars and writers might have only recently really started to think about in earnest and en masse. For instance, you have sections committed to food and the environment, as well as to um, global black history. Those are just two, I mm -hmm. think, e exemplary ones. Why did these sections in particular develop? Mm -hmm. um I think you're making a, a really um, astute observation about what we're trying to do at Public Books, that, that there are perspectives that are developing in the academy that we wanted to bring forward. So, um, so the, the idea, particularly of, uh, of food and the environment, is that, that there is an absolute explosion of interest in and research on those topics in fields from in the academy from end to end from um from literature scholars that are interested in analyzing novels from an environmental perspective to anthropologists who are studying what happens uh in environments when they're when they're changing um to of course, uh, of course, people in the biological sciences who uh, who's, who've been doing that for decades. Um, so when we're thinking about what we want to put forward in the in the magazine as a topic, we try to think about what are the emerging interests. Mm. What are the things that are kind of coming together now that are going to shape the next, say. 10 years of, of scholarship and how can we make that that change that vitality uh, obvious and uh, and interesting to a general readership and for us the the environment was was clearly part of that um, and also we want to take uh, subjects that everyone is interested in, like food, which which we see as absolutely connected to the environment, um, uh, and make those part of the scholarly mission and agenda. I know I personally am am deeply interested in food, both you know from a uh, personal eating perspective and also <laughs> from an intellectual perspective. It's fascinating to me to think about the histories of food, cultures around food, um, agricultural processes and economies. I mean, when you think about food as a subject, it quickly opens up into so many different areas. We felt like that was something that we really wanted to take advantage of. So I think I might have first heard about your site, or certainly it, it, it kind of came up um, in my life and in the lives, I think, of a lot of people kind of in or around the academy, um, or just anyone sort of fo focusing on intellectual debate as it was happening in these new magazines and journals that are coming up. I, I first heard about uh, public books uh, when uh, you published Trump Syllabus, um, mm -hmm. which is um, 
uh, it might have come out, I think it was the Global Black History section. It was a section um, in which Keisha Blaine and N.D.B. Connolly published. Uh, so there was mm-hmm. there was kind of, so I remember Trump's syllabus was in reaction to another syllabus that was published by another magazine. Um, and there was kind of, um, there was kind of a flurry of intellectual drama around the publication of these two Mm -hmm. syllabi. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and what effect you think that the Trump syllabus had uh, on the conversation. Sure. I am extremely proud to have published the uh, Trump 2.0 syllabus. Um, So we began at Public Books taking Trump seriously at a point where I think others still believed that he was a joke. Uh, So we published the Trump 2.0 syllabus back in July. And uh, and the way that the syllabus got started was uh, that the Chronicle of Higher Education had published uh, a syllabus that they were calling the Trump syllabus, which outlined a, a potential course for understanding Trump that really did not engage the issues of racism and sexism and xenophobia on which Trump had built his candidacy. Mm. And being in a network of scholars, uh, many of whom are historians of race in, in the United States, I saw that there was a lot of concern coming from those quarters and to address and um, do better at, at a kind of syllabus that would take him more seriously. And so Nathan Connolly and Keisha Blaine uh, agreed to take the reins on this, and they worked together with more than 100 scholars to kind of crowdsource a syllabus that would put race and gender and migration um, and histories of immigration at the center of of concern, and that was the that was where we got the the Trump 2.0 syllabus from. So how there was a great deal of um, discussion of the syllabus after the fact, and I think, in in part, I think there was a lot of discussion about it. At least this is this is what I suspect is because uh, it it seems like this is exactly what you would want academics to be doing in the public discourse, which is just bring in texts for us to discuss and talk about. Um, since they since they are producers, one of their many functions is simply to produce syllabi. And it seems like public books has sort of caught on to this because you are publishing more syllabi. Trump 2.0 um, was perhaps the first one, but I, th- but I think you've done some more recently. Could you describe those? Yeah, absolutely. So we really do see this as a unique kind of contribution that academics can make to the public discussion because uh, particularly with Trump, there, there is an idea that he is kind of unique as a, as, as a person, as a political fig- figure. Mm-hmm. This is something new in American history. And what we know as, as uh, academics and scholars is that that is simply not the case. So, it, I, I mean, we really see it as our job to provide resources for people to, to explore on their own mm-hmm. uh, what the histories of, uh, in particular, racism and sexism and xenophobia uh, are that make Trump uh, a, an extension of the American histories um, that that the Trump syllabus covers, and as a 
just as a general form of academic publicity, I think that the syllabus is a, a terrific way to help, uh, help readers understand the resources out there, the intellectual resources out there that can help understand our world. So we followed up the Trump 2.0 syllabus with the rape culture syllabus, mm. which it, it outlines a set of resources for readers to understand a major pressing issue of the day, which is sexual assault on campus. And this issue has, of course, gotten tons of publicity in the last couple of years because the Obama administration has really raised it as a central concern of some of their civil rights efforts. Um, but it hits the news in ways that, that we think are uh, most often read most productively with a knowledge of the history of sexual assault and also with the, the, the sociology of sexual assault and with the other kinds of uh, knowledge that scholars can bring. Otherwise, it looks simply like these sexual assault debates are, uh, are new mm -hmm. and, um, and unusual and that they are uh, flaming up kind of out of nowhere. But again, as scholars, we can really help show the patterns of big issues like sexual assault. Okay, so I have a question that's that's related to these points. So, of course, um, Public Books contributes to intellectual debate, as your website says, as well as cultural debate and literary debate. But what, in your estimation, uh, is the political function of vision or vision rather of your journal, if there is one? So, of course, you don't really you don't really state one outright. But the journal does publish essays that seek, in a sense, to contribute to or help lead a reaction against Trumpism, for one, mm -hmm. uh, but also, in a, in a sense, against a, a kind of political complacency. Uh, the Trump syllabus, as I say, is obviously an example. Do you, as an editor, solicit submissions that have a political point to make, or do you think your writers are already having these topics in mind and wanting to publish about them? I think that's a very good question. The basic political point of public books is that that academics and scholarship needs to inform public debate. And as, uh, as scholars, we can intervene in that. With regard to Trumpism, insofar as Trumpism has positions that are explicitly targeting knowledge and science um, for instance, we will will take a position that knowledge and science are important, that academics have something to contribute, and that that both facts and interpretation of those facts is still critical. Mm. That's the basic political uh, political position of of public books. So it. I think given the kind of know-nothing positions on which Trump uh, built his candidacy, it shouldn't be a surprise that many academics feel that, that they need to both kind of open the curtain on the, on the machinery behind Trumpism and to challenge the, the presumptions on which Trumpism is built. 
Um, so yes, many of my authors are, are ready to go. So I saw an address um, that your co-editor, uh, Sharon Marcus, gave about public books. This was online, uh, in which she cited the Daily Beast as having praised your journal for publishing, quote, meaty reviews by professors. Uh, so Marcus joked that mm -hmm. this made her happy uh, because the word professor was not being used as a put down, but as a reason to sort of read something. It's good. The suggestion was that, of course, it's good that professors are writing these pieces for the public. Um, do, do you feel uh, some need to push back against the kind of, of common view in the public uh, that professors, you know, spend their all, spend all their time in the ivory tower and aren't alive to the needs of, quote unquote, real people? Yes, I think that that is uh, an outdated stereotype. Okay. And another outdated stereotype that we hope public books slays is that professors don't know how to write. Karen and I both have personally felt a really overwhelming response when we ask people to write, when we ask mm. scholars to employ their expertise to help general readers understand um, uh, understand big issues. I mean, it's actually incredibly easy to, to get people to write essays. I was just editing a piece by a historian on, on issues around student debt, for instance. I asked, uh, you know, another to write about what what landscape designers have been doing to address climate change, people jump at the chance. They really want to bring their expertise to bear. Many scholars also really do know how to write. I mm -hmm. mean, that's, you know, that's what we do every day. And, and frankly, I don't really know where this stereotype came from. Um, and of course, it takes practice. You have to do something a bunch of times before you you really have facility with doing it. But uh, but scholars are you know th themselves the ultimate students. We spent more time in school than anybody else. We're really good learners. So uh, I find that after editing uh, editing you know hundreds of scholars at this point, I have uh, you know almost none who were resistant to the, the, to the process of editing. People really relish it. They, they love the feedback, they love the engagement, and they want to engage the world. Mm. So, so as you say, scholars um, spend a great deal of time in school, uh, in university, before they start teaching in university. And it, you know, I'm, I'm doing this right now. I'm in, I'm in grad school. And there is a process of professionalization that does have an effect, I think, on writing style. Uh, and you're, mm -hmm. you're trained to write for your trade journals. What, you know, what, what have you had to do as an editor, if anything, to get um, uh, the people who submit uh, work to you to write, not necessarily in a fashion that would be perfect for their trade journal, but more in the style, obviously, of public books or of The New Yorker or uh, perhaps more conversational, but still uh, meaty, still full of ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing that, that is important is to have scholars open with a kind of story or a vignette that's going to bring readers in. And now I'm an anthropologist myself, and this happens to be a classic 
uh, trick of anthropological writing too. So it was this this kind of comes comes naturally to me. I mean, we you know often open uh, chapters or or even articles in our in our scholarly journals with a vignette from field work that illustrates a larger problem. And and so many many scholars don't really do that in in their 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 kind of more technical work, mm -hmm. but it's not very hard to uh, it's not very hard to convince them to to do that. You know, of course, most most scholars are also readers of a wide variety of of media, and so when when we ask them to write um, as if they were talking to their uh, bored lawyer friends, which is that that is the 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 idea of our um, of of our typical reader that mm. we that we hold out to them that uh, it's not hard to get them to try to hook that bored lawyer friend uh, with with a story that that illustrates their um, the the point that they want to make. I guess one thing I've been wondering because there is there is a lot of excitement uh, in the academy I think especially among younger scholars about the existence, the rise in existence of places uh, and publications like public books. And it does make me wonder um, whether uh, the line, the distinction between purely academic publishing and sort of popular publishing will begin to blur. And I'm wondering whether that's a good thing. I'm wondering what new kinds of knowledge can be produced if that line begins to blur a bit more. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, whether you've kind of committed a lot of thoughts about this and whether you have um, an, an opinion about it. It's a very good question. And public books is absolutely out to blur that line okay. a bit, but we don't currently have a lot of, a, a lot of publishing organs that do that. I mean, there are, there are certainly, there are certainly some, but public books is uh, among, um, you know, the handful that, that do. Uh, I see the opportunity is, as you say, one that is not only about kind of publicizing knowledge, bringing knowledge to a public, uh, a wide public of, of readers, but also of, of changing the way that um, that knowledge can be produced itself. And I think about that in two different ways. One is that when, when we publish for, for general readers, we're also publishing for our colleagues in different fields who may not know at all what is happening in anthropology, say, or in history or in literary studies. By writing for general readers, we can actually, we can actually foment some cross-disciplinary perspectives mm. too. I think that that's, uh, that's very important. And many of our reviews actually bring together books that are from very um, from quite different perspectives from I'm, uh, I'm thinking of, of one piece now that that looked at writings on animal experience that brought together works in political philosophy on novels and uh, and on and and on sociology to create a kind of review that uh, that shows the kind of synthetic imagination that is possible when we bring together perspectives from 
across the academy and even outside of the academy. Another, another element of this line blurring that, that you mentioned is that it's a way for scholars to get feedback from readers who are not necessarily in the academy mm. to see what interests people, to see what hooks them, to see what bores them, to, to try to really understand uh, what, their, what messages, um, what ideas, are landing and resonating with others that that they wouldn't otherwise be in conversation with. Mm. So so it seems like a journal such as Public Books couldn't really exist without the internet, in large part because of the things you were just mentioning. Uh, your writers are primarily scholars, and before the internet, it would be really absurd to expect a scholar or really anyone who isn't a journalist to be up to date about the many things going on in the world and to comment on those things while bringing to bear the immensity of their own academic work and knowledge, and then also be responsive to feedback about the way they're commenting on those things. You know, that's a lot of work, mm -hmm. and it requires the, the immediate communication um, that, that the Internet provides. So this all makes me think that perhaps there's a new category of public intellectual emerging uh, one that's not so tweety or dependent on the thinker being plugged into the old sort of Lionel Trilling New York intellectual scene, but mm -hmm. one that, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, one that's more democratic and would allow for different kinds of voices from different uh, backgrounds and identities and universities and regions. So is, is that something that you think about? Is that something that you're hoping at Public Books to cultivate? Absolutely. I, I think that the, that the internet is an amazing opportunity to democratize scholarly knowledge. And uh, I think it's, it just provides an opportunity to change, the, to change the expectations that readers have around who is going to be writing. I mean, as we change the medium, we can actually change the kind of substance, too, of what intellectual life looks like, that intellectual life can, you know, um, have a female face mm -hmm. more than half the time. Uh, the, that intellectual life can be, um, you know, robustly informed by, by perspectives of black scholars and other scholars of, of color. Um, you know, we really make it a key part of our mission to cultivate uh, writers and cultivate an intellectual sphere where, where that kind of diversity is the expectation that there that when um, when readers go to other outlets, we hope that they notice that that those um, that those perspectives are are missing. So we really do actively cultivate that idea that that um, that the people who should be contributing to intellectual life um, are all over the country and the world that come from different perspectives, that come from different kinds of communities and universities, that come from community colleges, as well as from the Ivy League, um, that come from public universities and private universities. I mean, why would we ever restrict the, um, the intellectual sphere to uh, a narrow range of, of people? Um, we, we really make that uh, an absolutely central part of our mission. And I think it's part of the possibility that the internet gives us. Not that it's always um, in any way uh, brought to life, but we hope that we can be a part of doing that. 
So if it's all right, Kate, I just have a few questions about mm -hmm. about you. Uh, mm -hmm. First, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up around New York. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, and uh, I went to school in the Bronx. And uh, I had one parent who lived in Westchester. And I, I mean, I think that that growing up around the around New York, you know, intellectual life was just always part of my, always part of my world. So, so what did you study? Um, well, first, where'd you go to undergrad? And what did you study? And then, um, did you go immediately to grad school after that? I went to so my my school in the Bronx was Horace Mann, which is a high mm. school, um, and Horace Mann actually. Uh, has graduated many um, many writers and intellectuals, uh, also many bankers. So I went from Horace Mann to Brown University, where uh, and actually Sharon also went to Brown University. And Brown, in the period that we were there, and I think still today, uh, really was a um, a kind of cauldron of cultural um, cultural analysis, new ideas, uh, particularly around the major that I had at Brown, which was something called modern culture and media. Um, it's, a, it's a major that is unique to Brown, but it, um, it kind of brought together kind of perspectives on um, theoretic theories of, of um, cultural and social life um, with ideas about the production of media, like film and art mm. and writing. Um, uh, and so I, I came out of that tradition, and I, I think that it's very much alive in public books. So did you, uh, just another quick question about uh, college, did you meet Sharon Marcus at Brown? I didn't. Uh, so Sharon, Sharon and I met in New York. I think that Brown has a distinctive sensibility that Sharon and I share. So it's, uh, you know, another person who actually graduated from MCM was Ira Glass. Oh, <laughs> um, the, the NPR, right? Or this American Life. This American Life. Um, also uh, the writer Jeffrey Eugenides mm. uh, and, and many others. Um, I always thought Jeffrey Eugenides was from Michigan. Because he wrote the the version Suicides, which is about a neighborhood that I kind of grew up in. Anyways, um, that's very that's very interesting. Uh, so while while you're at Brown, you developed this kind of sensibility um, that was primarily uh, perhaps interdisciplinary. Did you take that on to grad school? Um, uh, did you did you stay at Brown for grad school, or did you? Go no, I, else? after Brown, I went to uh, first. I moved to New York, uh, where I worked at the United Nations um, Women's Group, UNIFEM. Um, and I also taught um, English as a, as a second language to the parents of um, Head Start kids on the Lower East mm. Side of Manhattan, um, uh, but only for a very short time. So I really, I, I went from Brown to Berkeley for graduate school. In cultural anthropology, and anthropology has always had uh, a lot of room for interdisciplinary work. Um, the the kind of uh, holistic tradition that anthropology was built on um, 
I think requires a kind of a eclecticism that uh, that that I've always enjoyed. You know that that we reach for uh, for resources in history and in literature mm. and in philosophy, uh, and all of that has has made its way into public books. So the department you teach in now um, at NYU that's social and cultural analysis is unique in a sense because it's pretty much kind of what you're talking about. It's a meeting place of scholars with different degrees and from uh, different backgrounds. Uh, what sort of work do you do in that uh, department um, and, and does it fit neatly into any particular discipline or field? <laughs> uh, my, my work uh, is definitely anthropology, but it, it absolutely crosses boundaries. In fact, I'm talking to you from a place called the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, uh, where I'm a fellow for the year, where um, cross-disciplinary fertilization of ideas is exactly at the center of its mission. So I'm sitting here with psychologists and sociologists and literary scholars and historians. And the beautiful thing about this is that it mirrors my everyday life. Mm. Um, as a scholar uh, in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, I have that kind of uh, kind of wonderful friction that comes from being around people who approach subjects, oftentimes the same subjects that I do, but from really a very different perspective. So I remember hearing uh, Michael Walzer, the founder of Descent, uh, say in an interview once that he really couldn't have gotten through grad school and frankly even um, teaching uh, without having Descent to write for. That is, he needed a space to think about things that were going on in the world every day and to, to write about them. Uh, was there a point in your development as a thinker, either at Brown or at, or at Berkeley, where you might have started to feel that way, that, that maybe the world of academic publishing didn't provide enough opportunities to engage with what was going on in the world every day? I think that came later for me, um, after tenure, to be exact. I, I was uh, very focused in graduate school on becoming an anthropologist. Um, and even though, as I, as I just said, anthropology always has space for other kinds of, uh, of perspectives. When I was in graduate school, you know, be training myself to think with the tools and the history of anthropology was really, was really paramount. Um, so it really wasn't until after, after I got tenure that I let myself do that. Um, to that, that I let myself kind of feel the need that I had mm -hmm. always had to uh, to to be more explicit and in, in um, kind of seeking out that everyday uh, everyday engagement um, with the world that that public books allows me to do. And I feel very privileged to be able to edit public books because it does keep my intellectual life just, Rumming all the time, and it's it's a it is a really a really really wonderful thing, and particularly now, um, I think that there's a, such a pressing need for scholarly perspectives and for understanding um, what America's place in the world mm -hmm. is um, and what the politics 
of our country uh, will bring us. Um, I think that that scholars really have so much to say about this, and I'm very excited and honored to be able to be part of, of bringing that to the public. Well, so one a question I really quickly have about um, the first element of what you just said. Uh, it's really interesting. So it seems like you're kind of pointing to two different ways that a scholar or even a grad student could go about trying to engage with or preparing to engage with the public. The first is like to always be doing it, to always have, have it basically in her head, even in grad school, and just continue to try to write for popular publications all the way through um, the tenure track. Uh, but mm-hmm. it sounds like it, your approach was kind of, I'm going to very consciously retreat into um, – into an intellectual space in which I can focus on these anthropological questions. I will develop these resources and these like intellectual abilities and capacities over time. And then I will bring them to bear on the public. Um, Mm -hmm. Does that, does Mm -hmm. that make sense? And do you feel like you can do or say certain things now, or you have certain habits of mind now that you wouldn't have developed if you had always been trying to do public books? No, not exactly. I don't think that the way I came to public books is a is a model for anything. It's just how it happened to have mm. unfolded. Um, but of course, it unfolded in that way in part because when I was in graduate school in the late '90s, um, there wasn't really a place um, to be writing in this public way um, for graduate for graduate students. Um, and, and I do think that, that there has been a kind of opening um, of that with what is now, I think, a really flourishing field of publishing with, I mean, journals like public books, obviously, but also like uh, N plus one, mm-hmm. uh, like, the new intro, sorry, like the new inquiry, mm-hmm. like the point, um, and so many other journals that that are uh, are online and blogs. I think that it's just a, a very very different kind of media environment than when I was a graduate student. I hope that public books can be a place where graduate students can learn to code switch. So, mm. and that's really how I think about uh, the the process of becoming a public writer. And um, Sharon and I tend to think of uh, of the people that we want to write for public books as public scholars. And and we use that phrase because we want people who really know their subjects in a deep and informed and intimate way where they have developed that expertise and those habits of mind, as you say, over a a long period of time. Um, But that they can also take those ideas and and, um, kind of bring them through different techniques of writing to a a broader audience. And now, so today, um, graduate students, I think, have the opportunity to do both of those things at the same time. You know, and we've had lots of uh, of graduate students writing for us, who I really see as the next cohort of public scholars. Uh, people like Matt Clare, the, um, the the young sociologist at Harvard, 
uh, who wrote a piece called Black Intellectuals, White Audiences, about, about the expectations that white audiences bring to the work of uh, particularly African-American scholars like uh, and, and writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates, for hmm. instance, um, or like uh, Pat Abatel, uh, who is writing about, about restaurant labor, even as he is working as a waiter to fund his way through being a PhD candidate at NYU. So these are two, two examples of graduate students who are who are learning how to code switch, to develop them themselves and their writing and their expression in a scholarly environment where they're writing to people who share assumptions, who are looking to advance knowledge in the way that that scholarly journals do by kind of you know making arguments and points for a very kind of internal facing world at the same time that they want to bring those perspectives to bear on subjects that are important to a broader audience. So they mm. have to learn to switch back and forth between those different languages. So actually, this is great because I, I was hoping to ask you, I guess, a question about, about practical advice, especially for the next generation of, of scholars who are hoping to contribute to the kind of uh, discourse that you're, you're helping open up and make possible. So I guess uh, just just for some, you know, practical advice or to talk about sort of inside baseball things. What was it like to be a scholar and to say, actually, you know what, I want to found a journal online that is for the public. I mean, it's one thing to think about that and to say, oh, gee, wouldn't it be nice? It's another thing to sit down with your colleague and actually kind of get it done um, and get it up and running and cultivate an audience for it. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about that. So what sure. what did you have to do? <laughs> um, I don't, we, you know, it, in some ways we just did it. I don't even, you know, part of it is, is about finding someone to work with who inspires you yeah. and with whom you have a good relationship. I mean, I think that Sharon and I egg each other on in the absolutely best way possible. Um, so I think one thing is to, is to, is to be in, in partnership and collaboration. I, I think that that keeps me going, um, with public books every day and, and was essential in getting it started that it wasn't, that it wasn't only me, but it was Sharon and me kind of hatching this idea together and reaching out through our, through our networks, um, to, to really make this a collective project. So it's it's not about trying to put either of ourselves forward as some kind of paragon of intellectual innovation or something like that, but rather the but rather to say like okay, I know, you know, you all out there, my colleagues and and collaborators, I know that you want this platform. Like let's do it together because and mm. and and so the first thing that it takes is really a sense of uh, of community and commitment uh, from a really wide variety of people to to get this done, um, including people who are uh, who are like vastly better at um, at at organizing things than I am. Uh, like, for instance, our managing editor Stephen Twilley, who was absolutely essential in getting this this off the ground. Um, so I, I think that that the collaboration is just 
completely essential and also um, valuing the contributions of a lot of different kinds of people and, the, and, and thinking about all of the many different kinds of, of labor that have to go into something like this and, and you know, putting that at the, at the center um, of, of, your, of your work. And, you know, we have a good time every day and we like each other. <laughs> so that, all, that, that all helps. So, Kate, I think that's a, that's a pretty good place to stop. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking with me. All right. Thank you, Joe. It was great. That was Kate Zaloom, co-founder and co-editor of Public Books. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow HowensteinGVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.